0: A member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org.
1: Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host, C.J. Walk is up next.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. So today, the topic for our show, we will be talking about beekeeping and honey production here in Maine, um, and maybe a little bit beyond as well. But I have two guests with me here in the studio, and I'd like to take a minute to introduce each of them. So I have Courtney Collum from College of the Atlantic, where she is the Partridge Chair in Food and Sustainable Agriculture Systems. And Courtney is also an avid beekeeper. So Courtney, thanks for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me, CJ.
0: And I also have Peter Cowan from uh, Hamden. Peter is also known as the Bee Whisperer. And Peter keeps bees, sells honey and honey products uh, through his supply store in Hamden, and he also teaches quite a few classes, courses, and workshop workshops in our area on bees and beekeeping. So I'd like to thank you for being here today, Peter. Good morning, sir. Um, so I'd also, uh, before we get into discussion um, with our guests here today, I just wanted to come back to each of them and just let them do a little bit more of a, a self-introduction. And then let listeners know that around 10.30, about halfway through the show, we'll be opening up the phone lines for any comments or questions, and I will give uh, the toll-free number at that time. But I thought if we just jump back to our guests, uh, Courtney Colum from College of the Atlantic. Um, Courtney, could you just tell us a little bit about your interest and kind of experience with bees and beekeeping?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I got into beekeeping about four years ago. When I was doing my PhD at the University of Maine, and I was working with Dr. Frank Drummond and a number of other folks there, actually looking at blueberry production. Um, and blueberry here in Maine is dependent on bees for crop pollination, and we import a large number of honeybees each year for pollination. So in 2015, we actually imported 77,000 hives um, through migratory beekeepers into the state. So I was interviewing blueberry growers about their use of honeybees, and I started to talk with uh, beekeepers themselves about the contracts they set up with producers in order to meet that demand for pollination. And through that work, I just happened to run into Erin McGregor Forbes, who is a master beekeeper here in Maine. We actually met while I was doing a tour at Allegash Brewery, where she was working at the time. And she said, if you really want to learn about bees, you should just come to my house and keep bees with me. So I started keeping bees with her and just fell in love with it i think like most people do uh-huh. and uh have now shifted my research more towards that
0: okay all right thanks courtney um and peter how about for you a little bit of background in history well i
2: uh, started keeping bees at the uh, age of 11 okay. and uh it's been a hobby i've been involved with on on and off for since that time uh and really i've been a typical hobbyist beekeeper until about five years ago. Uh, then the my beekeeping changed entirely when I was asked by Hamden and Arno Adult Ed to uh, if I'd give a class in beekeeping. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it, I thought, right, okay. I didn't really feel qualified to do so, but I started to brush up on the books and things that I hadn't, I hadn't been reading for a while and realized all the things I'd been doing wrong uh, for a while. And Actually, that year I had 70 students and uh, uh, feeling, again, feeling like really I needed to draft in a bit more help here. We started up uh, Penobscot County Beekeepers Mm -hmm. at that time in order to make sure that there was some sort of fallback, that people had more uh, people that they could go to for advice rather than just myself. My beekeeping went from uh, keeping half a dozen hives to... 10 and then 20 and now I'm up to nudging 100 hives Um, and the people attending classes I've been asked by more and more places to give classes Um, and I've now this year I gave my uh, my, took on my 1000th student uh, and I give classes in a dozen different areas around Maine um, all the way up to Fort Kent out to uh, Jonesport uh, east to Reedfield Mm -hmm. all all over the region, uh, as well as giving classes myself. And so I've also started to take on uh, beekeeping supply and supplying people with bees. Mm -hmm. And so as this has grown, there's been more and more need. Um, I'd worked with uh, my mentor locally, which is Harold Swan, who was sort of you. You can't um, have lived in Maine and had a jar of honey without seeing the name Swan. And yep. Harold started Swan's Honey back in the 40s okay. with his dad. And uh, he, he'd been a beekeeping supply uh, guy in the area. He's now in his 90s, and he was looking for someone to help sort of scale down what he was doing and take over uh, some of the stuff. And so I've been, over the last few years, taking on more and more of the bee supplies and beekeeping
0: supplies mm-hmm. side of things. Okay. All right, interesting. Well, thanks again to both of you for being here today. Um, I think to start off a little bit, I would like to speak or ask you to speak a little bit about the the history of beekeeping. Um, maybe we can think about broader scale, but also I think it's interesting to hear some maybe of the uniqueness of what you may know about the history of beekeeping in the state of Maine. Um, and Peter, I guess I would just jump back to you to Maybe intro a little bit on the history of bees. Uh, History of beekeeping, I probably,
2: uh, let's see, I probably know more about worldwide rather than just Maine's history of beekeeping. But the, uh, I mean, bees have been important to man for many, many thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's in Egyptian hieroglyphics. It's on uh, Greek mythology and all, uh, it pops up throughout uh, the earliest recorded history. Um, And Back then, people were basically raiding wild hives or uh, managing bees in hollowed-out logs that sort of thing. And that that involved basically tearing the honeybee colony apart, primarily to get honey. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the mid-1800s, things really changed for beekeeping as the movable frame hive was developed so that you could open up a hive, move combs around, and close it up again without destroying the colony. And I think that sort of revolutionized how people looked into beekeeping and the understanding of what was going on with bees um, and made managing bees uh, a much easier task.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. seems like once you could kind of manage that population in a box, it would be, or in a hive, it would be Mm -hmm. easier than the hollow log approach. Yes, yeah, and without having to
2: actually destroy the colony just to get the honey out. Yes. yeah.
1: Yeah, I would just add to that. Um, I think we talk a lot about honeybees being a non-native species, which they are. They originated in Asia, spread throughout Europe, and then were introduced uh, in the United States in 1622, likely into Virginia. But they've been here 400 years. So even though they are non-native, there are many crops here that have sort of evolved with them to a certain extent over that time. And i think the fact that they were brought over here with the colonists shows how important even at that time honeybees had become for people that you know you're packing up your entire life and moving to a new mm-hmm. continent and you have to bring your bees with you because you're mm-hmm. dependent on them for wax and sweetness and and all of these other things
0: uh-huh. yeah. so it was in it and it was intentional that they were brought over yeah. not so much kind of yeah they were the in, yeah. And,
1: intentionally brought over and okay. and yeah then like peter said and uh langstroth that's the term for the movable hives, when Langstroth discovered what's called bee space um, in the 1800s, he discovered that there's a certain distance uh, between which bees will not um, draw wax. So you can actually create frames with that space between them, and then you can sort of put in these um, frames like files in a filing cabinet, mm-hmm. and it allows you to remove the frames without completely destroying mm. all of the wax and, and comb that's in the hive. And it really revolutionized beekeeping as we know it today. Okay. There are still honey hunters, though, uh, in, in South America and in parts of Africa, but it's a dying art. You don't see as many honey hunters going out to trees and, you know, cutting down bee trees and extracting and foraging. honey. foraging. Like you used to. Yeah.
0: You know. Okay. All right. Good. Um, well, I think we could talk next a little bit. Um, I think it would be good to get a piece about just how the bees uh, live and work and survive in these hives and— um, uh, I guess I would ask Peter, maybe you could speak a little bit about maybe kind of the life cycle of the hive or transitions throughout the season right. um, and some of the kind of basic management knowledge p- people would need to start out. Sure. The, um, most
2: people's conception of bees is that there are many hundreds of species of bees, even here in Maine. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we're, we're, in terms of what we're talking about is the honeybee, um, which is a, a colonial uh, insect. Um, and unlike most other colonial bees, honeybees live, the whole colony lives through the winter. And so the number one concern for the beekeeper is to manage a colony so that they are sufficiently healthy in the fall to live through a main winter. Uh, and to do that, they have to be relatively disease free and parasite free and have enough food stored to keep the whole colony fed during the winter. And they might use as much as 100 pounds of honey to survive the winter because they're generating heat inside the colony, uh, keeping the center of the colony something like 98 degrees throughout the winter, even if it's minus 20 out, still 98 degrees in the middle of that cluster of bees. And so what we try to do is make sure that, um, as a beekeeper, we try to build up the colony, uh, keep them healthy, keep them free of parasites. and give them the space that they need in order to grow, um, try to avoid them becoming overcrowded, um, and then ideally have them in locations where they can find sufficient forage to collect all that uh, nectar, which they turn into honey. Um Most beekeepers would start a colony uh, with something like a package of bees, which would be uh, taken from a colony uh, further south where the spring arrived months earlier and the bees are already thriving and growing really quickly. And there'll be a package with about 10,000 bees and a queen bee Mm -hmm. to start a new colony. Um, that's one way of starting a colony. The other way is with what we call a nuke or nucleus colony, where a colony is already partially established and there might be four or five combs of brood and honey and food stored there that the bees can take on and clearly that's something which is going to grow much faster because it's a a more developed colony. And that's what I spend a lot of my spring doing. First of all, early in the spring bringing in hundreds of packages for people to stock hives which are either new hives or ones that have died over the winter Mm -hmm. um, or um, maybe in and that would be in April and May and from May to June they'd be uh, I'd be producing nucleus colonies for them to install into their hives as a a ready established colony Mm -hmm. which will then grow on. The um, it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, you get in, involved into a, a beehive, and you've got the queen going there, laying eggs. The queen sort of binds the whole colony together. Not just She's not the monarch of the colony. She doesn't rule the colony, but she does bind it together with these um, chemical messages called pheromones that mm-hmm. bind the colony together. It really behave, um, controls the behavior of the bees in the hive. But it's really... Um, collective mind, really. You've got um, tens of thousands, perhaps as many as 100,000 worker bees in a colony who um, really dictate what's going on. The collective mind of the hive, they know when they need more space. They know if the queen is performing very well. And um, they will overthrow the queen and start raising a new queen if necessary. Um, uh, They will decide to split the colony in two and form a second colony and tell the queen, uh, we're packing up, uh, you're, you're coming with us. Mm-hmm. And the queen will go with maybe half the workers to start off a new colony while they've, the the colony is already prepared to split in two by raising new queens uh, to take over from the old queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a really fascinating thing to see all these processes take place, to see how they make their decisions and uh, to be part of it and help manage that in terms of providing them space really is a wonderful experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Nice. Um, Courtney, did you want to?
1: Yeah, add some I would just this? add to that. Like Peter said, it, it's really incredible. Bees are incredibly intelligent insects, and there's a lot of really fascinating research out there. There's a researcher at Cornell University named Tom Seeley who's done a lot of research on. Uh, honeybees as a superorganism so as Peter said you have solitary bees like um, leaf cutter and sand bees and sweat bees but honeybees are truly social insects they live in you know these massive colonies of 40 to 60,000 individuals and they make all of those decisions collectively and they actually operate as a true democracy so when they're making a decision about finding a new nest site they actually engage in dialogue a lot like we do here in -hmm. New England in town meetings where they present their case for different uh, nesting sites that have different attributes and then they collectively decide which one is going to be the best home. So I would recommend uh, that reading for (laughs) anyone who's interested in in modeling democracy after honeybees.
2: Okay. It's actually some sort of uh, beautiful hybrid between communism and democracy because you have these democratic processes taking place in terms of selecting a home, that sort of thing, and yet it's never about the individual bee. Uh, it's all about the collect the collective good mm-hmm. and the bee will give its life up for the collective good uh it will they will uh share the roles they all do various roles in the, in the colony um but it's never for the individual it's always for the the collective good it really is an amazing thing to experience interesting are
0: there um in some of the native bees are they are there other colonies like that or are they mostly solitary
1: Bumblebees are also the, the only other truly social bee mm-hmm. species. Um, so bumblebee colonies will have anywhere from 50 individuals to 200. And they operate similarly that you have a queen, but they're a bit different in that bumblebees operate more on a system of domestic violence, the queen literally sort of beats the rest of the workers into submission to keep them from being reproductive. Whereas in a honeybee colony, it's, as Peter said, you know, more communal and and intentional. But the rest of the species of bees, you know, I think one thing people don't realize is how many they are. We have about 4,000 different species of bees in the United States alone. I think we have 276 here in Maine. Mm -hmm. And those are your sand, sweat, leaf cutter bees. But the only social ones that live in large colonies are bumblebees and honeybees.
0: Okay. And some of those solitary bees, they're not raising brood on their own as much as laying eggs and going off?
1: Yeah, yeah. They're sort of doing it alone. Some of them will um, dig holes into the ground and they'll sort of share tunnels with other species of bees. I'm sorry, with other bees of their own species. Um, But you don't see them making those collective decisions and rearing Mm -hmm. bees in large colonies. It's sort of one bee and her
0: brood
2: yeah yeah and the other the other thing that sort of differentiates the uh, honeybee from the other uh, colonies of bees like wasps and yellow jackets and hornets and and the bumblebee is that unlike those species the honeybee keeps going through the winter the whole colony Mm -hmm. that lives through the winter whereas all these other species um, that live in a group will go through the process of raising queen bees and male bees during the fall they go out to mate and then the whole colony dies. Uh, those mated queen bees will then hibernate in wood piles and leaf piles and bury themselves in the ground and survive the winter. And then they start up the colony again in the spring as an individual Mm-hmm. So this time of year, I get lots of phone calls from people with yellow jacket nests under their under their deck or um, uh, bumblebees in their wall or something. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, by the time we get into August, the colonies are reaching their peak in population, maybe early September they're at their peak. And I can tell them that most of these colonies, they're going to die out. By the time we get to October and we get some heavy frost, their problem will have gone away. Mm-hmm. With honeybees, that's not the case. The honeybees, the colony keeps on growing, and it keeps on growing mm-hmm. um, until something causes them to die, like the parasitic mites that we have, which is a sort of scourge of honeybees right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then what you have is you might have in a wall cavity a 100,000 bees making a huge colony in the wall. It could be – it could have – 20 square yards of comb in there at some stage, Um, this should be full of hundreds of pounds of honey. And then if the colony dies from a parasite, then you've got a problem of a colony collapsing inside the hive, Uh inside the house, and combs start to break off, mice start to get in there eating the combs, and you've got hundreds of pounds of honey falling down in the walls and seeping through the walls and out (laughs) through the floors and all sorts of problems, and so... I get a lot of calls to remove colonies from people's houses and things like that and that is a fascinating challenge sometimes I imagine the biggest problem is getting at them but uh, once you open it up you're seeing a colony of a whole new shape and uh, all sorts of different stages in their development from a brand new colony a day old to one that's been there um, or been there populated on and off by new swarms taking over for perhaps decades.
0: Uh, So something were to happen to that colony that's there, a new colony could come in the previous year and still use that. Uh, so, uh, very often, yes. An old colony is like
2: a a hive that's died out. is like a furnished apartment to a new swarm looking for a new location to build. Mm-hmm. And that's the first place they will t- tend to go to is a previously uh, built colony. But in the meantime, it could have caused quite a bit of damage to the home and yeah. uh, if, that's, if it's one that was full of honey when it died. I imagine.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just going to take a minute to remind listeners that this is Common Ground Radio, and today we are talking about bees and beekeeping, uh, mostly here in Maine. And my guests today in the studio are Courtney Collum from College of the Atlantic and Peter Cowan, uh, the bee whisperer from Hamden. So thanks again for being here, folks. Um, In probably about 10 minutes, we'll open up the phone lines for any calls or questions after we get through some of the introductory bits uh for the show here today so um i think in terms of uh we've talked about the colonies a bit but in terms of practices for the beekeeper um is there kind of a schedule throughout the year if you're maintaining a hive you're you know maybe you could start thinking getting them through the winter and once spring comes back around and things warm up the hive activity starts to increase. I imagine are some of the first things they're doing is trying to find new food sources once spring arrives. Um, yep, the the key is we start off, typically a new
2: hive might start in late April, early May. And initially then the first priority for the beekeepers to help them provide this the ability to grow the colony because the bees will build their co- colony by producing wax and the workers will hang thousands of workers will hang motionless with scales of wax start to develop on their body. After about 12 hours they'll peel these off, chew them up and form this beautiful hexagonal honeycomb mm-hmm. pattern that we all know um, and they need lots of food to do that. They'll eat about 7 pounds of honey to make 1 pound of wax and so the beekeeper will supplement that by feeding them sugar syrup to start with mm-hmm. to help give them the fuel to build the comb. Over the first month or so they're building their their combs out Uh, the queen as soon as the combs are about quarter inch deep the queen will start to lay eggs in them Uh, after three days the egg will hatch into a little larva. looks like a little tiny maggot in the bottom of the cell Mm -hmm. Uh, for six days that larva will grow and become maybe half an inch long Uh, and then it will pupate just like a butterfly a caterpillar will turn into a butterfly the honeybee that goes through the same process they get sealed in the cell as a pupa Mm -hmm. and on the 21st day it will hatch and be a fully developed adult bee from then from once the colony is starting to produce uh, adult bees then the colony starts to really grow the more bees there are the warmer they can keep the colony the more wax they can build the more the queen can lay more eggs and by mid spring, the Queen may be laying her own body weight in eggs per day, two to three thousand eggs per day. Uh, the colony will grow from maybe ten thousand bees to fifty or sixty thousand bees by roughly the end of june um, and then it will keep on growing there's loads of different types of flowers uh, coming in in May and June, and so the bees are bringing in pollen and nectar they feed the Pollen is the protein source that they'll feed to the young bees. The nectar is the sugar source that they'll make honey from. That's their carbohydrate source, and they mm-hmm. will continue to grow the colony. The beekeeper at this stage is needing to give them more room. Uh, after about a month, they will go from being in one box, that we'll call a deep super or a hive body, to two boxes high, so that they, they'll they have grown, um, and the brood chamber or the place where the queen lays eggs is continuing to grow up and uh, they may have 10 15 combs full of young bees developing there as that grows we start adding more boxes this time smaller boxes so we can remove honey because the bees tend to store honey at the top of the hive Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, a shallower super is easier to lift when it's full of honey than is a deep super um and our priorities make sure they have room to expand into because the bees can see, they can sense if the colony is going to run out of room. If they've already built all the comb that they've got space for, they start thinking, "Well, oh, look, there's a lot of nectar coming in now. We could, we could conceivably uh, do better by splitting in two mm-hmm. And the beekeeper's job is to try to avoid them getting to the situation where they feel cramped. Because if they feel cramped, then they go through the process of swarming or splitting in two, yeah. and that reduces the productivity of that hive and you lose some of the chance of producing a surplus of honey because mm-hmm. a lot of your bees have gone elsewhere. Um, and so we try to manage that. Um, we also have to be very uh, vigilant about the buildup of parasites at this time as well mm-hmm. um, throughout the whole year, but particularly during early summer to late summer. We want to make, avoid these parasitic parasites develop, and these are called varroa mites or parasitic mites. They're sort of like a tick. Um, uh, and just like a tick can give us Lyme disease, well, the varroa mites will carry over a dozen different types of viruses into the uh, bee. When they parasitize the bee, um, it's, uh, although it's a tiny little bug on another bug, it's, if, if we had a tick the size of a varroa mite relative to a honeybee, it would be like having a cat. Size tick on your body and that in itself can damage the bee significantly but it's the viruses that they introduce in that process which is the real killer and if those viruses and parasites build up to a certain level in the hive it gets beyond a point that the hive can be saved mm-hmm. and so what we're looking is avoiding the buildup of those parasites by treating the hives with various treatments to try to various management techniques to reduce the buildup of mites, um, and failing, if that doesn't work, then we eventually have to use some sort of treatments to kill the parasite without her- harming the bees. Mm-hmm. And if we can get the colony into the late fall with relatively few parasites, relatively little virus in them, therefore, and plenty of honey, they will almost always make it through the winter, even the tough main winters. Mm-hmm. Varroa mites account for about 90% of the losses of bees in Maine. Okay. And if we can control varroa mites, we reduce most of the things that will kill colonies in Maine. It, it's not going to stop them dying from a really bad winter or uh, water getting in the hive as the, the top blew off and that sort of thing. But most of the time,
0: bees die because of the viruses the mites bring in. Okay. So it's not necessarily the parasitic nature of the mites as much as the viruses that they're bringing into That's the, hive. the worst element of it, yeah, the parasitic
2: nature will damage the bee to a
0: roughly a bee
2: will be twenty five percent smaller and weaker for the rest of its life and mm-hmm. predisposes the bee to other problems, yeah, but it's those viruses which really do the damage
0: okay, interesting um. All right. So I think that we'll get ready to, uh, it's about close to almost to 1030, but I think we'll get ready to open up the phone lines. If anyone had any comments or questions, we were talking about bees and uh, beekeeping, honey production here in Maine. And that toll-free number to get here into the studio with your comment or question is 1-866-625-9378. And again, my guests in the studio are Courtney Colum and Peter Cowan. Um, so thinking back to some of the practices, we kind of talked about some of the challenges with pests and disease. Um, are there different types of practices? I mean, you're both raising bees. Are you doing something significantly different? I know that when we talk about farming and farming systems, sometimes people are ending up with a similar product at the end, but doing things a little different. And I know that I've read and seen some things about, um, I believe they're called top bar hives, a little bit different structure rather than the supers we've been mentioning.
1: Yeah, there are a number of different ways to keep honeybees. There's a a warre hive, the top bar hive. Um, Some people have had success with top bar hives in Maine. They were really created for southern climates that are much warmer. They're exposed on the bottom, so there's a lot more air circulation. So they tend not to work as well in Maine because it's just simply too cold for the bees to stay alive. So here in Maine, most people use the Langstroth hive that Peter has been describing. But, you know, as you and I have talked about, CJ, every farmer does things a little bit differently. I think it's the same in the beekeeping community that you never meet two beekeepers who are doing everything exactly the same. And I found in my research, actually, that the the thing, we see a lot of people start beekeeping, take it up as a hobby, and within two years, they're out of it because their bees are dying in the winter and they're finding it too difficult, and they don't have the support networks to really get the knowledge that they need. And so the people that really succeed at beekeeping here in Maine are those who have a really strong network of other beekeepers who are going to open hives. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter often hosts, hosts open hives at his apiary, and they're going and they're seeing the different practices other people are using. And from that, they're gleaning knowledge about what might work in their their specific location and what might work best in their apiary. So it's really fascinating, I think, if, if you're someone who's interested in getting into beekeeping, call around, go to the Maine State Beekeepers Association website. There's an entire list of all the different county organizations, people who are keeping bees in your area, and call them up. Beekeepers love to talk about what they do, and we'll be happy to show you you know, how they manage their
2: their operation yeah and I also think it's the diversity of beekeepers and beekeeping techniques are also I think in the long term really important for bees uh, for the successful future of beekeeping um, there are some common things that we all need to do knowing how to recognize and uh, manage for mites in particular uh, but the diversity of ways in which we keep our bees um, as a biologist I understand that the diversity Diverse habitat is very important for having a lot of different species. Diverse life cycles and life histories are also important um, to avoid everybody getting hit with the same problem at the same time. Mm-hmm. And with honeybees, diverse management techniques will also help avoid everybody having the same problem at the same time. And I think that that's one of the big um, Benefits uh, that beekeeping is undergoing a big revolution in numbers of people getting back involved with beekeeping, Um, having gone through a serious decline in the last thirty years. With when Varroa mites arrived in this country, they only arrived here in the in the eighties, and uh, we lost millions and millions of colonies. All the virtually most of the colonies that had been out in the wild had died out, Uh, and beekeepers found that when I was a kid, keeping bees was so easy. You gave them lots of room in the spring. They'd make, you'd take off lots of honey in the fall, and almost every winter they'd make it through the winter. Um, once the mites came in in the 80s, then you had something which was just undermining this the whole time, weakening the hives in the summer. So by the time they got into the winter, the, the cold killed them,
3: mm-hmm.
2: or the stresses associated with that killed them. And it's taken a long time to develop good techniques and good practices to get uh, that under control. And it's still not entirely under control. But our management techniques have increased our chances of survivorship. If you didn't have help, you would have had a real problem before. Now there are ways of probably increasing your chances of survivorship to about 75% most winters. You have to expect to lose some bees. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the thing the beginner beekeeper has to understand is that you're going to lose some hives. and it's so important to restock those hives in the spring because they're building on all that resource, all the effort a colony last year made in terms of building all that comb. That all gets reused again. It doesn't carry through and be a problem. It's not infected. The parasites die with the bees. Mm-hmm. And so restocking a colony under those circumstances was really important. But as a biologist, I think it's so important that we have what, – what the uh, beekeeping is dominated by is um, – Several com- lots of uh, commercial beekeepers with tens of thousands of hives. We've got about just under three million colonies managed in the United States, and the vast majority of those are managed by people with tens of thousands of hives. Mm-hmm. But there are now more and more beekeepers with two or three hives in their backyard, and I think it's far better that we have thousands more beekeepers with two or three hives and one or two more beekeepers with 10,000 hives because all of these commercial beekeepers are having to take their bees to places where disease to be trucked from California almond groves to the blueberry barrens in Maine Mm -hmm. Um, and this is very stressful on the bees and it's um, it's a time when Diseases can be spread, and that sort of thing, so those bees are undergoing a lot of a lot of extra stress that your typical bee hive wouldn 't mm-hmm. normally undergo, and they 're exposed to more risks and it 's far better to have that diversity of beekeepers with the diversity of backyards and techniques mm-hmm. which are going to um, uh, I think preserve the the background of having
0: a stable beak beak population okay mm-hmm. interesting diversity seems to help out a bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it extends just beyond management. As Peter was saying, you know, we have about two and a half million hives in the United States right now. And that's in the 1950s, we had about six million. And we've lost so many colonies because of things like shipping fever from moving migratory hives across the country to the pests and disease. Peter mentions pesticides have been a major issue, but also landscape loss, habitat loss is one of the biggest um, issues threatening not just honeybees but also our native pollinators, mm-hmm. so you not only need to think about your management and a diversity of practices but also the diversity in your landscape. Bees depend on pollen and nectar and they need that from diverse flowering resources throughout the year. so as a someone with a you know who's getting into beekeeping or has a large apiary, you really want to think about what are the pollen and nectar sources around your property. Do you have something flowering during each season of the year that 's going to be a good mm-hmm. source of? Of protein and carbohydrates
2: for your bees. Okay, yeah. For the backyard beekeeper, of course, that's all out of their control. Mm. Um, it's better that we at least have a colony in an area which didn't have a colony. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, if we had, if we owned all the land around us, we could make it a wonderful environment for the bees. But the bees will fly for a radius of two to three miles if necessary to find the food. Typically, they'll find what they need within a quarter mile. Mm-hmm. But um, it it's, it shouldn't be something which puts off a beekeeper, uh, a potential beekeeper, from starting because they can they've only got a little yard. Um, they uh, really we are dependent on what our neighbors are doing and what their neighbors are doing in terms of the habitat for the bees. But the more beekeepers there are, the more people are educating each other about this is good for your bees. When you start beekeeping, you start taking an interest in all sorts of things that you never. Thought you'd be interested in botany. What's in bloom now? What? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this would be a great place to keep my bees now. But you start appreciating that the, the weeds in your lawn are now no longer a weed. They're a food source for the bees. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, uh, you start to admire people with a yard full of dandelions. And um, it's a, it, it really is uh, it does change your perspective on mm-hmm. the whole environment around you. Yeah,
1: Frank Drummond at the University of Maine likes to tell the story that dandelions were actually introduced to the united states for honeybees they were brought here as a, a nectar source for bees in in early spring and are one of the most vitally important flowers in the early spring for bees
0: early food source in yeah. springtime mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. dandelions are blowing. all right um i'll just let listeners know again that uh if anyone has any comments or questions for our guests today we are talking about beekeeping and um we'll get a little bit into honey production here moving forward but the number to call into the studio with your comment or question is one 625 9378 So how about we move into a little bit about honey itself? Um, I guess, um, obviously important to the bees, but in terms of maybe just a brief overview uh, are there health benefits to, pe- to honey for people, or mm-hmm. does it just really taste good?
1: <laughs> no, honey is a miracle. It's actually it's an antibacterial, antifungal, antiseptic product, um, and it, it never goes bad. So I'm, I'm sure many people have heard that they've actually found honey in pyramids, you know, 10,000-year-old yeah. honey. Um, and they're starting to do a lot more research in New Zealand and Australia and Europe on the actual health benefits of honey. It's um, used often on bandages to heal um, burns. It's very effective at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many people use it for to treat allergies. You know, if you eat local honey, you're getting a bit of that um you know the the pollen in your own neighborhood so it's sort of taking a little bit of that can help with your allergies so it really is it's not just delicious it's also very good for you okay all
0: right well it looks like we do have a caller on the line i think we have peter from walldborough would you like to go ahead with your comment or question
3: yes i have a question on the uh, medications that we're giving the bees to kill the varroa mite what's the effect on the honey
2: there's a, a number of different uh, medications out there. Um, there's a couple that I typically would use on a hive that has honey on it, and there's some that I certainly wouldn't use when I have honey on it. Uh, two that are good this time of year when our hives are full of honey would be something like HopGuard 2, which is a hops extract, and the other is Quick strips, which is formic acid. Both of those occur naturally in the environment, and uh, formic acid occurs naturally in the um, honey itself. Uh, but it's at sufficient levels when it's introduced to the hives to kill parasitic mites, not damage the honey, but it can also penetrate the brood and kill the mites there. And uh, it works very, very well. Um, although during other times of year, I might use things like uh, oxalic acid, uh, which Shouldn't be used uh, when honey is on the hive, uh, but again is very good at killing mites superficially on the bees themselves, the phoretic mites that are on the adult bees themselves. Um, uh, but that should be done after the honey has been removed from the hive. I'm
3: currently using the uh, the mite strips.
2: Uh, the Mitoway quick strips? Yes. Yeah, I think that they work very well. One precaution I'd advise to bear in mind is that you should never use that if the temperature's gonna get above 85 degrees. I like away quick strips very much. It's a good, strong treatment um, but if the temperatures get above 85 degrees um, out externally, the, um, you can result in some queen losses. I've lost about three years ago when I used it at slightly too high a temperature, I lost about 15% of my queens that way. So just bear that in mind. If you have put on mitoaway crick strips and it starts nudging above 85 degrees, I'd recommend opening the screen bottom board if you have one right. uh, to l- ventilate the hive a little bit more than otherwise.
3: My other question is: uh, So far, my bees haven't capped the honey; they've left it uncapped. And this is the first time—the first time I've used the mite strips, the mite strips—and I noticed the capping is. I've been doing this for about thirty years, so I've, you know it's a whole new protocol for me that be using these because I've, you know, I, I I moved up from the southern part of the state. And uh, we never had the away the
2: uh, Varroa mites that we do here. Right. Well, unfortunately, they're all over the world now. Um, right. But it was your concern about the honey not being capped while you've got the away quick strips on? Right. Yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about it. It's not going to adversely affect the honey. Um, and certainly, as you'll know, you probably want to keep that honey on the hive until they've capped it to be able to extract it.
3: Well, they have a whole super filled, but no caps. Yeah. So put the second...
2: Super on and hoping they'll. Yeah, well, when, uh, up here, typically what we have is um, two major honey flows. Right now we're in between honey right. flows. Um, and usually, round about the 15th to 18th of August, uh, it'll be like a light gets switched on when the latter species of goldenrod to bloom start to produce nectar. And then they, then you should see those frames getting capped pretty quickly.
3: Well, that feels a coveted goldenrod. So they're already.
2: Yeah, I find that um, the first species of goldenrod to bloom um, in late July, early August rarely produces much nectar. Um, I've seen some bees on it this week, but it rarely produces a significant amount of nectar. But the species of goldenrod that starts blooming in mid-August, that usually produces a lot of nectar, provided the weather conditions are right. Last year, with the drought we had in our area, we got no nectar from the goldenrod in the second half of the year. Even though it's blooming and that sort of thing, it produced nothing. Um, But in a normal year, we get lots of nectar starting around the 15th of August.
3: Okay. So I shouldn't worry yet.
2: Not yet. Not yet.
3: And I have one other question on uh, the interaction. Because we have a a farm field next to where my hives are, and they're spraying a, a green spray on it to kill weeds and i can't seem to find out what they're spraying but my bees i know are pollinating there Mm
0: -hmm. yeah you should be able to if that's your neighboring field be able to approach your neighbor and and ask what they're using i have okay not willing to share the information it's green water okay Hmm. you could probably inquire at your local uh county extension office as well there'd be okay, some knowledgeable know. folks there that would have an idea of what might be using yes okay
1: and if it's yes. something you can't get them to stop spraying you could also talk to them about timing even shifting the timing of spraying a bit can help bees if they're doing the spraying well, they spray early in, in the spring do you know if they're doing it in the morning or during the day uh during the day during the day yeah that's the worst time to be spraying mm. so <laughs> yeah
0: okay or, okay well that, thank you very much yeah thank you for your calls and questions Peter. Um, Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the honey production side of things. Um, We've kind of talked about it a bit, but uh, seasonally, I mean, it seems like you need to leave enough honey in the hive for the bees themselves. And at what point can you decide that there is enough that you can take away? Is there some type of measurement? Is it just a learned observation over time?
1: Yeah, uh, typically... Beekeepers, if you have good honey production in a year, you'll do two extractions, one in, a, in the spring when you have a lighter uh, honey, and then you'll do it again in the fall. Like Peter said, there's a period of time in between when there aren't many nectar sources and bees aren't really producing honey. Mm-hmm. And most beekeepers um, leave at least one brood box of honey to make sure that there's uh, enough honey to get the bees through the winter. This is something I'm personally really excited about right now because I'm just starting a new project with the University of Maine called Project Sweet Spot where we're going to be working with beekeepers and maple syrup producers around the state to look at how, what, you know, how are they marketing their products, what issues are they having with scale management if they're trying to scale up their production. Uh, and for some beekeepers, they're too small to warrant buying the equipment for extraction, so they're interested in sharing that equipment with other people. Um, or they're interested in you know having another apiary, but they don 't have the land, so they 're looking for a landowner who's willing to let them put their hives on. So for anyone who's interested, I think in that, please reach out we 'd love to work with you on this project, um, especially people like Peter and Peter, I think you can say a, a bit more about honey extraction
2: right yeah, well yeah, I say a rule of thumb, we try to if you manage a hive with which has got two brood boxes. That would be the what I typically advise my students is two deep boxes. If they um, go through the win- go into the winter with the top box full of honey, the hive has enough honey to make it through the winter. And so, typically, uh, during this time of year, anything that's stored above that is honey that you can take off yourself. Okay. Um, and so, we we might have a one box, a, a, a shallow super can get might make another twenty five pounds of honey in it. Uh, my highest that are producing honey typically would average 40 to 60 pounds of surplus honey in one year. Uh, and I've had plenty of hives which every year some of my hives will do about 200 pounds of surplus honey but on average it's more like 40 to 60 pounds. Mm-hmm. and it, But that totally depends on your location and how much forage you have and uh, how much competition there is and that we have good weather because the same area might produce no honey at all one year but a lot of honey the next. Mm-hmm and uh and then then of course um in terms of honey production the, one of the the big things is uh the difference between uh local backyard beekeeper honey or locally reared honey um to uh compared with some the typical big big box store type of honey which is uh, ubiquitous around the world or something and it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, honey from multiple countries or uh, honey that's been brought in from all sorts of places and typically that honey has been processed in a very different way it's been uh, uh, pasteurized so it's been heated to about 150 degrees yeah. and then ultra filtered in order to remove even traces of pollen from the uh, honey This uh, normally this is done in order to stop crystallization um, which is a natural process that all honey would go through. But by removing the mi- most, mic- melting and remove- filtering the most microscopic crystals and the pollen grains, this removes the source of crystallization. But it also, very conveniently for these companies, reduces all ways that you can trace where the honey came from because the pollen in the honey is the footprint of where that honey was produced. Um, And so then it opens up the possibility for all sorts of things to be mixed or added or what Mm -hmm. have have you from the honey. And so uh, lots of studies have been indicating that a lot of the honey that you buy from these sort of sources may not be honey at all or or at least be significantly diluted with things like corn syrup and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The best way to ensure the highest quality honey is to get it from a local source, from a local beekeeper who's simply taken out the combs, cut the tops off, spun, spun it out, passed it through a bit of a sieve in order to get through big chunks of wax or the odd bee's leg or something. And then you end up with a pure honey with all the local pollen mm-hmm. and everything that the bees want in the honey. Mm-hmm. And that makes for a very, very different product. And uh, by buying sources of honey like that, you're supporting the local beekeeping as well, mm-hmm. which
0: is hugely important. So there's no heat treatment in the in that extraction? Uh, typically, typically
2: not. If a beekeeper wants to maintain the shelf life of liquid honey, they would warm it up to above 110 degrees. That can melt the crystals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's um, but uh, typically you're average beekeeper is not going to be doing that he's got honey there which is uh, will cri- with time will crystallize and this rate at which it crystallizes depending on depends on the flower it came from mm-hmm. something like clover honey in the spring will crystallize very very slowly mm-hmm. whereas goldenrod honey in the fall will crystallize within weeks um sometimes people go uh, <laughs> tragically sometimes people throw away honey because it's solidified in the jar not realizing that that's just what honey does it's still perfectly good to eat Mm -hmm. if you in love with liquid honey just warm it up gently and it'll go back to a liquid Mm -hmm. Um, but crystallized honey I love crystallized honey you can stack it up higher
0: on the bread it's wonderful (laughs) (laughs) so it's really the the pollen that's in the honey that is not necessarily the
2: pollen it's actually the type of sugars and the balance of sugars in there which dictate it but more pollen in the honey would speed up the rate at which the crystallization takes place okay
1: And this can sometimes be why beekeepers um, feed sugar syrup. Sometimes people don't understand that. But um, depending on the flower source that was used to produce that honey, it might crystallize within the hive. So sometimes bees will have sufficient honey throughout the winter, but it crystallizes and they Mm -hmm. have trouble um, digesting that. So that's why sometimes beekeepers will supplement with sugar syrup as well. Okay. But, um, yeah, as Peter said, you know, for years we've seen rises and dips in the cost of honey and that's often because there are people importing uh, honey from countries where it's actually banned. So China, for example, was using antibiotics that were banned in the United States for a while. So we will not sell Chinese honey in the United States but often what they'll do is they'll send it to India or another country that we do purchase honey from and they'll put it under that label and it will make its way into the United States. But we're actually in a good place right now where the price of local honey is high and and we're not really flooded with mm-hmm. um, antibiotic-tainted honey.
2: And people are appreciating the differences between the honeys, mm-hmm. and so while you might still go to the supermarket and get honey at $4 a pound, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people are be prepared to pay the beekeeper $8 mm-hmm. to $10, $12 a pound
0: for local honey, which is a totally different product. Mm-hmm. So some of those big box products could be just honey from numerous countries, put into one bottle. Yeah, if, if, it's honey, if it's honey at all. If it's honey mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. What's your definition of But I don't honey want to cast keep. dispersions. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, well, we are uh, today on Common Ground Radio, we're talking about uh, bees and beekeeping and honey production. And my guests are Courtney Collum from College of the Atlantic and Peter Cowan, uh, the bee whisper- whisperer from Hamden. And we're getting into kind of the last 10 minutes or so of the show. Um, But I thought just in kind of the honey products or the the honey product piece, I just wanted to ask kind of quickly how, um, and we talk about the honey that we're going to use for eating, but then you also see it in some other maybe health and beauty products is the Mm -hmm. right term to use or the wrong term. But um, is that often just mixed in? Um, What is the purpose of honey in a lip balm or honey in a salve or a lotion? Well,
2: the... um That's one of the the fun things to do with the bees during the wintertime. You can't play with the bees at all. You can't go in there, but you've extracted your honey. To extract your honey, you cut off the capping of wax they put on it.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: so you've got a whole load of wax for every, say, 20, 30 pounds of honey you extract. You end up with about a pound of beeswax. And this is a beautiful product, which you can then mix with oils and that sort of thing, heat it up, mix with oils. And you can make lip balms, hand creams, cosmetics, soaps, all sorts of different things, candles and uh it's one of the the fun things to do with the bee products during the winter time
0: yeah
2: Mm -hmm. yeah so recover some of your costs that you've invested in keeping definitely definitely
0: so it's also i mean honey itself seems pretty stable in terms of shelf life and then the waxes thousands of years And there
1: are different varieties of honey that have different health properties. One that you often find in health stores is Manuka honey, which is honey produced from the Manuka plant in New Zealand. And that's one that there's been a lot of research showing all of the health benefits of Manuka. And many people recommend you eat a teaspoon a day and
2: you'll Mm -hmm. never be
1: sick a day in your life. I don't think that's been proven.
2: There's also a lot of things you can do with honey. um, Mixing it with like some of the medieval recipes, mixing honey with ginger and cinnamon, Mm -hmm. uh, it makes a wonderful... Uh, diversification of the honey itself okay. and uh, lots of sort of uh, notions of how this can help help health as well and so it's a sort of thing if you look into the history of early medications it's very often based on honey mixed with uh, various spices. Yeah, interesting. Yeah.
0: Okay well we are getting kind of down to the last few minutes, four or five minutes or so um, I just wanted to, uh, if people are interested in more information, I think, Courtney, just to start with you, you did mention, um, we didn't get into it too much, but the Project Sweet Spot, some new research Mm -hmm. going on, but do you have contact information that if someone were interested in getting in touch with you? Yeah,
1: people can find my information on the College of the Atlantic website. Um, Just Google Courtney Collum College of the Atlantic, Um, and I'm always happy to work with maple syrup producers, beekeepers... Uh, growers who look who are looking for pollination services um, and really excited to bring people on to talk about this grant and potentially find some research partners some beekeepers who are trying to scale up their businesses or maybe even scale back and are wondering about that secession process of you know how do you find someone to take over your operation additionally i think a great resource for anyone is the main state beekeepers association website and they run a swarm hotline so if you Have a swarm in your yard, as Peter mentioned earlier in the show, if there are some bees living in the side of your house, please don't immediately kill them. (laughs) Go to that website, uh, Maine State Beekeepers Association.
2: It's mainebeekeepers.org.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And uh, they can typically find a beekeeper who's willing to come to your house and help you extract those bees.
0: Nice. And then, Peter, for you, in terms of people who are interested in more information or some of your educational opportunities, how would they... Well, the key, of key, uh, one of the things, that, that's although it's getting
2: late in the year to start with bees this year, uh, it's a good time to start planning for it for next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good way to do that is to take a class in beekeeping. Depending okay. on where you are in the state, uh, the main beekeepers um, organize a lot of different classes. Uh, I run a number of them myself in this general region, okay. um, uh, Bangor, Hamden, Ellsworth, uh, Reedfield, uh, but in the spring, I run even more. So if you uh, look at your local education, adult ed, um, mm-hmm. is a good, good place to find beekeeping classes. Okay. Also, go onto that website, mainebeekeepers.org. They're just starting to update when classes will be and where they'll be, which typically take place any time from September, October, right through to April. Okay. May. and so uh, there's new ones coming up all the time so if you don't see one in your area now just keep on looking if you want to go onto my facebook page i'll be letting you know when um uh, i'm doing my classes and that sort of thing that's the bee whisperer uh, and uh it's uh, it's a good way to get get some of the basics uh, Because whilst diverse beekeeping is very important there's some commonality that you need to get some of the basic things right in order to have mm-hmm. the best chance of Keeping them well.
0: All right. Okay. Well, I think we're getting to the end here. So I do want to thank um, Courtney Colm from College of the Atlantic and Peter Cowan from Hamden for joining us today. You've been listening to Common Ground Radio, uh, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association right here on WERU. Uh, And Common Ground Radio can be heard the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. So I'd like to thank Amy Brown for engineering our show today. And please stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond.